Last week, we ended off with what might be considered the crescendo of the story, right? Haman got his just due. He is sentenced to death. He felt the full weight and measure of Torah. He quite literally, you think about it, experienced, as I said last week, he experienced the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And what happened to Haman? The very gallows that he sought to make, to kill Mordecai the Jew on, he himself was hung on. Torah was fulfilled. The golden rule was implemented. As we continue today, we're going to find that the story doesn't end with the death of Haman. There's more to it. Remember, there's that little thing called the edict. Remember in chapter 3, Haman created an edict for one purpose, that on the 13th day of the 12th month in the Hebrew calendar, All the Jews were to be eradicated. They were to be killed. They were to be destroyed. So in light of this fact, there are still some things in the story that are left, some things that need to be reconciled. So with that said, let's break in to today's message, chapter 8, verse 1. We read the following. On that day, and I want to make sure you're with me, what it means by on that day, it's referencing the very day Haman was killed. This is the day it's talking about. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. If you take the time to ponder this passage for a little bit, to let it sink down, it's a pretty amazing thing that is actually taking place here. It's actually spectacular when you consider the the, the prophetic implications that are involved. Here we have Esther. She's standing before the king, and what does she do? She does something. It's amazing. She confesses Mordecai before the king. That's what is happening. She is confessing Mordecai before the king and revealing to the king, he is one of us. He He is one of mine, my own. Amazing. Now, at first glance, this may not seem like a big deal, but when you consider the characters that are involved and who these characters actually represent, what is being said here, well, then the whole interaction becomes a very, very big deal. We know Ahasuerus, remember, he is actually the typology of the father. Mordecai is the typology of Yeshua, and Esther is representative of the nation of Israel as a whole. This is what she represents. Now, When you compile that information along with what Esther is saying to Mordecai the king, we realize that there's a prophetic parallel being spoken here. Eschatologically speaking, one of the things that needs to happen prior um, to Israel being saved, prior to them ultimately receiving salvation, something has to happen. They have to confess before the Father, the Lord Yeshua. You cannot make this stuff up. And let me evidence this because this is actually found in the teachings of Yeshua. Look at what is said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. This is Yeshua's words. Oh, Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, the one who kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate verse 39 for i say unto you you shall see me no more till you say 
He's speaking to his people till you say, Baruch Abba Shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, Yeshua is not coming back. He is not going to be revealed. And Israel isn't going to be saved until they confess him before the Father. Until they heed his counsel. Until they call upon him. Then they're going to see the return of the coming king. We see the very same thing happening in our story in Esther. Esther is now confessing Mordecai, the Jew, before the king. Oh, and guess what? What a coincidence. We keep running into these coincidences. Now the Jewish people are going to experience salvation. It's amazing. Verse 2, let's move on. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Two things are said here pertaining to Mordecai that are absolutely of the utmost importance. Both of which, I can tell you this, they further testify of the legitimacy, the authenticity of Mordecai actually being a real typology of Yeshua of Nazareth. The first thing we're told here is that the king, he takes off his signet ring. And what does he do with it? Does he give the ring to Esther? He doesn't. Read the text. He does not give the ring to Esther. This is very significant. He gives it to Mordecai. Amazing, right? Now understand something. Something about the king's signet ring. It wasn't just some frivolous or or, uh, insignificant trinket. The king's signet ring, it was the seal. It was his seal. It It was the seal of his authority. If a letter had the king's seal on it, understand it, it's law. Whatever is written in there, if it possesses the king's seal from the king's signet ring, it's decreed. It's going to happen. You can take it to the bank. And thus, follow this to its logical conclusion. If someone possesses this signet ring, this seal, they possess the king's authority, they possess the king's power. That's what they possess. This is what was given to Mordecai. This is what he assumed. He assumed the king's authority. He assumed the king's power. And the whole act of what is taking place here, it's a prophetic template. It's just another prophetic template of the relationship that exists between the Father and our Lord Yeshua. Perfect example of this is as we come to the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 1, Yeshua, he enters the synagogue. And he does what he does best. He touts his power, his authority. A man who is possessed with a demon, Yeshua goes and literally commands the demon, come out of him. And what does the demon do? Well, it has to obey him. It's submitted to his authority. But look at how the onlookers perceive this and what they said. It's absolutely incredible. Verse 27, chapter 1 of Mark. Then they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, with authority, He commands even the unclean spirits, and they come out of Him. Our Lord has the authority. He possesses the signet ring of the Father, if you will. See, because when Yeshua speaks, it's going to happen. Just as we know, when the Father spoke, let there be light, there was light. Nothing anyone can do about it. So when Yeshua commanded this demon, this demon had no power. Yeshua ranked higher in authority. 
the highest in heaven and on earth. There's something different about our Lord. This is the confidence we can have in him. We have confidence in his authority. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. And so it was when Yeshua had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I love this. In Yeshua's ministry, they identified there's something different about it. He doesn't talk like the scribes. He doesn't talk about our teachers. He doesn't talk like they do. He actually talks from a whole entire different position. He talks from one who has the authority. It's amazing. And then we come to Matthew 28, verse 16. After Yeshua's resurrection, then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain, which Yeshua had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped worshipped him, but some doubted. And Yeshua came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What an amazing statement. Yeshua declares, all authority has been given to me. In a very similar fashion, this is exactly what is taking place between Ahasuerus. What Ahasuerus is giving to Mordecai. He's giving him all authority. Now, I can tell you the whole concept of passing the signet ring. This is not a foreign concept, biblically speaking. This is something we've seen before. And wouldn't you know it? That where we've seen this before, ironically, it is in the very same context with similar characters, essentially telling us the very same story. Only instead of the characters being Mordecai and Ahasuerus, the characters are Pharaoh and Joseph. Let me take you here, because this is really going to, again, put the story of Esther into perspective to show you the prophetic implications that this story has. It's powerful. Genesis 41, verse 38, we read the following. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this? A man in whom is the Spirit of God? He's speaking, Pharaoh was speaking to his people of Joseph. See, because Pharaoh had these two dreams, we know these dreams of the seven cows, and then the seven stalks of grain. And they come up good, and then they go bad. He needs them interpreted. And what's Joseph do? Because he bore the Spirit of God. He comes on the scene and interprets them. Blew Pharaoh's mind. He is in awe of what he saw. Then Pharaoh said to Yosef, Inasmuch as God has shown you all of this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. What an amazing statement. Out of all the people in his kingdom, he said, No one compares to Joseph. Nobody. And I'm going to just tell you something before we continue. Man, when you want to talk about typology... Joseph is one of the most overt, most prominent typologies of Yeshua in all of Scripture. All these aspects of Joseph's life, you could, you could write a book on just his typology of the Messiah Yeshua. Moving on to verse 40. Pharaoh says to Joseph, you shall be over my house. Isn't that interesting? You're going to be given authority over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater to you. Sound familiar? Verse 41. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. You cannot make this up. This is exactly what is happening in the story of Esther. Identical. 
Here you have Pharaoh taking the signet ring and giving it to Joseph, putting it on his hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Moving on to verse 43. In other words, he exalts him. What do we know that Ahasuerus has done to Mordecai? He's exalted Mordecai. Same, same. It's on the same story. Different generation, different book. Same story. Verse 43. And he had him ride in his second chariot, which he had. And they cried out before him, meaning before Joseph. Before Joseph. Bow the knee. They were to bow before Joseph, the one who was given the signet ring by Pharaoh. You can't help think Paul's writings in Philippians. At the name of Yeshua, every knee will bow. Heaven and on earth. And every tongue is going to confess that Yeshua is Kurios, that he is Lord, the very term used in the Septuagint of Yudhe Vavhe, the Tetragrammaton, the sacred name of God. So he cried out before him, bowed the knee, so he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. Listen to this. Without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. So understand, when we read this, the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. We've seen this before. This story has been told before. And prophetically speaking, it's speaking of a relationship that exists on a much higher level than Pharaoh, Joseph, or Ahasuerus, and Mordecai. It is speaking of the father and his only begotten son, Yeshua. Powerful. The word of God is Mind-blowing, is it not? Now, there is something else I want to just briefly mention here in regard to this passage. And that is the fact that we see here, and the rest of this passage, that Esther, she's given the house of Haman. What does she do with it? She gives it to Mordecai. She puts it under the authority of Mordecai. You have to ask yourself, why? The answer is obvious. Number one, she trusts in Mordecai. Esther trusts in Mordecai. She believes in his wisdom. It makes you think about Proverbs chapter 3, and what does it say there? Honor the Lord with all your possessions. Literally, here you have Esther, the, the, the depiction of Israel, honoring Mordecai with her possessions. As you just, it's, a, it's just absolutely amazing. And really, I point this out to show you the mentality that the bride of Yeshua is supposed to have. It's seen in Esther. So when we study Esther, study her actions and how she interacts with Mordecai and the king very carefully because your lives should emulate it. We should be emulating Esther, her actions, her wisdom, her humility, all of it. Moving on to verse 3. Now Esther spoke again to the king. Um, spoke again to the king. Fell down at his feet and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. See, the story doesn't end with the death of Haman. We have the matter of that document, that decree that went out to all the land that was professing the Jews must be killed. On the specific day, the 13th day of the 12th month. Moving on to verse 4. And the king held out the scepter toward Esther. 
So Esther arose and stood before the king. Very important to note the details again. You want to talk about the righteous, the Bible over and over, especially the Psalms uh, do a marvelous job, talking about that the righteous will stand, the wicked will fall before the Lord. But what is Esther doing? Because the king held out a scepter, she gets to arise. This is another picture of the resurrection of the dead. And we will stand before the Lord, and the wicked will fall. Verse 5. And said, listen to what she says, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and this thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes. I need to stop here, because here's a perfect example of you and me needing to learn from Master on how to approach the king. There's a specific mentality here by which she approaches. And let me tell you something. Do you want to learn how to pray? How to approach? Which, what do you, what's prayer? Prayer is approaching the king. Do you want to learn how to pray? Pay attention to what Esther is doing right here. And this goes back to something that we talked about last week. And when we see that it says... Um, in first in first John uh, chapter three verse twenty two whatever we ask, we receive from him. why? because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Notice how she approaches the king now that 's powerful preaching right there i 'm doing something right. <laughs> Notice how she approaches the king. We know when we ask from him, and when you ask anything, what are you doing? You're praying. It's communication between the Lord. What is Esther doing with the king? Communicating. This is prayer. And we find that she explicitly says, if I have found favor in his sight. What's 1 John 3.22? It says the exact same thing. We receive the things because we do the things that are pleasing in His sight. See, you are giving the mysteries of the kingdom of the living God right here. You're being shown how to approach the king, how to pray. This will change your life. You study this. And not just that, notice it says, if it pleases the king, if the thing seems right. What's well, interesting, because you go to back to 1 John chapter 5, and this is the confidence that we have. Um, it goes on. I actually have it right here. I'll just read it briefly. This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will. Think about that. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He does it. What does Esther say here? If the thing pleases the king, if the thing seems right. So in your prayer closet, when you approach the king... Are you praying for his will? Or are you praying for your will? See, because the Western, the Gentile mindset, this is about me. I'm going shopping. And then you go and you give this litany. We're not talking to Santa Claus. We need to pray for his will. You want your life to change on a whole other level? I can give you the secret of one of the ways that my life changed was my prayer life. My prayers changed. When Yeshua was teaching his disciples how to pray, what did he say? Our Father that art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. 
This is how Yeshua taught us how to pray. Thy will be done. It's amazing the truth, the power that is in this story that we need to glean from this story. How we approach the king, how we pray, it's right here. Right here. It goes on to say, she goes on to say, uh, this is her petition. She's now approached the king. If it's your will, if I have pleased you, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. Moving on to verse 6. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. That's a no-no. You don't do it. Verse 8. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews. As you please, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. Needless to say, there's a lot to say about this passage. Let me begin by pointing out the fact that the king is not drafting the document. I want you to ponder that. The king is not drafting the document. The document's actually going to be drafted by somebody else. The responsibility falls into the hands, as we're told here, as Mordecai and Esther. Now, obviously, this is something that is somewhat unusual. I mean, for the king to send out a document in his name and to put his seal on it, and yet he's not drafting it? Yeah, it's a little unusual. And to help you understand the gravity of what is actually being said here, what's taking place I want you to notice what happens when the document is written in the king's name and it is sealed with the king's signet ring. Look at this, and I'll underline it. Whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. Now, first thing I need to say, we see a fundamental principle woven throughout the tapestry of the Bible, right here. And that is on the testimony of two or three, all things are established. Notice, there is a testimony of two here. It's not just the seal of the king's ring. It is the name of the king, and it is his seal. The testimony of two. And when these come, it's solidified. Whatever is written, whatever is spoken, it cannot be undone. cannot be revoked. This is going back to last week, the week before. This is why Balaam could not curse Israel. God commanded. He had made a decree that they are blessed. It can't be undone. Because spiritually speaking, the Lord sealed it with his signet ring. And his name was on it. It's amazing. Isn't it interesting that the document that's to go out through the entire kingdom of Ahasuerus, saying the exact same thing that we find the Bible stating all throughout the pages Regarding the Jewish people, they're untouchable. You cannot mess with them. You're only going to reap curses upon your own head. Moving on to verse 9. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Savan, on the 23rd day. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded. 
Did you catch that? See, because in the previous verse, the king put the responsibility, or as it's stated in the text, upon Mordecai and Esther. Pay attention. Now we read, according to all that Mordecai commanded. Who is producing this document? The one who bears the signet ring. All Mordecai. This document that's going to come out comes from the mind and authority that was given to Mordecai. Amazing. And this is going to come, this is going to be uh, much more important as we continue that you recognize this. Now, continuing on, so uh, we read, according to all that Mordecai commanded, and it goes on to say, to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. Meaning, no one's excluded. This document is going out to the entire world. Everyone is going to see it, just as the Bible has gone out to literally every country, every province under heaven. It goes on to say in verse 10, And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, here's this testimony of two. Here you have, think about this. Mordecai is writing in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring. And sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses, bred from swift steeds. The whole event here of Mordecai, writing this law, writing this decree, specifically in the, king name, in the king's name, you have to understand, understand, this whole act that Mordecai is doing effectually makes him achad, makes him one with King Ahasuerus. This is, this is what's going on here. Now I ask you, who does this sound like? Well, it sounds like the relationship that we see between Yeshua and the Father. John chapter 5, verse 43. I have come in my Father's name. Amazing. Yeshua states the exact same thing that we see happening with Mordecai. That he has come in his Father's name. Mordecai has come in the King's name. So when Mordecai sends out copies of this document to every city, every province within the kingdom, he is in essence coming to the whole kingdom and the king's power and the king's authority. The two have become one. And this is exactly what Yeshua says in John chapter 10, verse 30. I and my father are echad. We're one. The very relationship that exists between Yeshua and the father is the very thing that we see being portrayed here between Ahasuerus and Mordechai. Because the relationship, spiritually speaking, prophetically speaking, is telling us something. It's pointing us to something much deeper. And man, it really puts the story of Esther on a whole nother level when you start to see this stuff. The story of Esther is far more powerful when you view it through spiritual eyes. Because the story itself no longer is just history. But it's applicable it applies. It's something we can apply to our own lives. It becomes interactive. That's power. Moving on to verse 11. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them 
both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. Verse 12. On one day, in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, everyone, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. All right, so let's just look at what we got thus far. Number one, we have a document. And something about this document is very unique. The document is, in fact, the product of Mordecai. Then as we come to verse 11, we're given uh, some details. And I emphasize some, because we're not given much, but we're given some details as to what is actually said in this document. We're told the document's uh, actually granting the Jewish people permission to gather together. Did you catch that? It's granting them permission to gather together to protect their lives. And let me tell you something. When you think about this, it really is an amazing, amazing thing that's being decreed. And I say this because if you know anything about the Bible or about Jewish history, you know that when the Lord calls for his people to assemble, he's calling them to assemble because he's coming to show up. He's coming to meet with them. You think about all the assemblies that we read about, the Shabbats that we read about, the assembly, come here, my children, the Mikrach Kodesh, the holy, the sacred calling. We're being called out to assemble. You think about the calls that Israel would receive when the silver trumpets in Numbers chapter 10 were blown. You blow one, the elders come, you blow two, everyone's to come. It's for the moving of the camps, and they didn't move without God being present. This calling for the Jews to assemble, it's a powerful message that is being conveyed. And let me tell you something, with this, with this edict, as it goes out to the entire land, you better believe it is going to strike horrific fear into the inhabitants. Just as we read about when Israel is coming into the promised land, when they were gathered together as one man, and they came out and they started to go into the land. The inhabitants of the land were stricken with fear. Think about Jericho. They were hidden behind fortified walls and they paled in fear because of Israel. Why? Because their God was with them. You better have man. The inhabitants of this earth better fear. The fact that God of Israel has drawn back his nation, his people to his land. And they're being gathered collectively to come back as one in all their provinces to confess the name of Yeshua, Jew and Gentile. The inhabitants of the land better start fearing because God is coming. He's going to show up. Now, I want to point out that in these two verses, verses 11 and 12, these two verses we just covered, yes, while we are given some information as to what the document actually said, it is quite interesting that if we go to the Greek version, we're actually given the entire contents of the letter in detail. And because of the contents that are found within, I wasn't going to include this because this is, it's, it's a little lengthy, but because of what is found in it, we have to go there. You need to see what I'm about to show you. It is so powerful. So the, the Greek version of Esther records the entire letter. And I want to show you 
exactly what it says. This is what it says. The following is a copy of this letter. Now keep in mind, this went out to every province, every man, every woman, and every, the entire kingdom. Nobody was missed. The great king, and let me further add, who is this a product of? Keep in mind as we go through this, this is a product of Mordechai. The great king Artaxerxes to the governors of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to those who are loyal to our government, greetings. It's amazing because you look at Paul's introduction to in his epistles, very, very similar. Amazing. I wish I could put, I didn't put them in here, but amazing. Those who are loyal to our government. In other words, those who are loyal to our kingdom. Moving on to verse 2. Many people, the more they are honored with the more generous kindness of their benefactors, the more proud do they become. My, oh my, how true that is. In other words, what is being conveyed in this document, what Mordecai is telling us is that when people receive all the glory and all the honor, they become puffed up. They become puffed up and arrogant. The more proud do they become. Moving on to verse 3. And not only seek to injure our subjects, but in their inability to stand prosperity, they even undertake to scheme against their own benefactors. Verse 4. They not only take away thankfulness from others, but carried away by the boasts of those who know nothing of goodness. They even assume that they will escape the evil hating justice of God, who always sees everything. Here, Mordecai, he's essentially just addressing the wicked people of the kingdom. And he states, listen, there is going to be a count. Don't be deceived. This is what the letter is stating. Don't be deceived. God sees everything. Well, isn't that interesting? Because this is identical. This serves as an identical parallel to the teachings of Yeshua. Again, what a, what a coincidence, huh? Moving to Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. And you will be hated... By all, for my name's sake. Can I point something out here? Something that happened in this story? You will not find Haman coming after the Jews, any word about him hating the Jews, until he has a fallout with Mordecai. You know that? The fallout of Mordecai sent everything spiraling so that it wasn't enough to take him down alone. He wanted to take the entire race. And here, Yeshua says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Understand in our story, the Jewish people essentially were hated because of the name of Mordecai. Cannot make this up. And he who endures to the end will be saved. Jumping to verse 26, this is where he gets into the parallel. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. The very same words that Mordecai spoke. God sees everything and there will be an account. Think of Ecclesiastes 12.13. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing. Nobody's going to get away with nothing. You know, how many times have I seen people that slam their fists down because they want justice for themselves? I'm telling you, take confidence that your king is going to serve that justice. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Moving on in this letter. 
verse 5. And often many of those who are set in places of authority have been made in part responsible for the shedding of innocent blood and have been involved in irremediable calamities by the persuasion of friends who have been entrusted with the administration of public affairs. In other words, oh, this is amazing. Mordecai is calling those who have been put in authority and positions of power, he's calling them into an account. And he's saying some of them, hey, they're being corrupted. They're being corrupted and they're, they're going to be held responsible for bloodshed. Fascinating parallel. Go home and read Matthew 23 and see what you read. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets. The very men who were put in authority. Cannot make this stuff up. We go on in verse 6. When these persons, by the false trickery of their evil natures, beguile the sincere goodwill of their sovereigns, verse 7, what has been wickedly accomplished through the pestilent behavior of those who exercise authority unworthily can be seen. By the fruits you will know them. Not so much from the more ancient records that we hand on, as from the investigation of matters close at hand. Verse 8. In the future we will take care to render our kingdom quiet and peaceable for all by changing our methods and always judging what comes before our eyes and with more equitable consideration. Verse 10. For Haman now comes into view, the evil one. Haman, the son of Hamadatta, a Macedonian, really an alien to the Persian blood, and quite devoid of our kindliness, having become our guest, going to verse 11, enjoyed so fully the goodwill that we have for every nation. I want to stop here, because this comes into play again. Mordecai speaking, the Jew, representative king of Yeshua, speaking on behalf of his Jewish people, he says, enjoyed so fully the goodwill that we have for every nation. If you know anything about the Bible, the Bible said that the Jews would bring light to every nation. They would bring righteousness. Read Romans 2. Read Isaiah 49. Read Isaiah 42. And then he goes on, that he was called our father. Haman was called their father. And was continually bowed down to by all as, per, as the person second to the royal throne. Absolutely amazing insight to regard, in regard to just how glorified this man Haman really was. Even to the extent they called him father. It's interesting that uh, this letter that is being sent out to every city again in every province through the entire kingdom. It includes... The glory of Haman. Why do I find this interesting? I'll tell you why. Because the Bible does the exact same thing. The Bible includes the glory that Satan once had. Read Isaiah 14. Read Ezekiel 28. Amazing. Unless, unless we forget the very same document just as we just read, again, also sent out to the entire nations. Now, it's going to go on to describe his fall in verse 12. But unable to restrain his arrogance, he undertook to deprive us of our kingdom and our life. 
What does Satan come to do? What does the enemy come to do? Exactly what is spoken here. He has come to deprive us of our life, and he's come to deprive us of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Right? Yeshua's words, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy in John chapter 10. And Haman, like Satan, was unable to restrain his arrogance. He was puffed up. He embraced the glory that was given to him. And it was embracing this glory by which he fell. Moving on to verse 13. And with intricate craft and deceit, Haman asked for the destruction of Mordecai. Isn't that interesting? With destruction, deceit, intricate craft. How did Satan come to Yeshua? How did Satan betray Yeshua through Judas? That very way. Crafty, being deceitful. Didn't he betray him with a kiss? What does Proverbs say? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of the enemy are deceitful. It's exactly how Satan came to Yeshua. Now, this is really the highlight of what I want you to see, what I want you to get out of this letter. What we are about to read, if you had any question in regard to Mordechai being a true and authentic typology of Yeshua, and you think, oh, Daniel, you're just just making this a spectacular teaching. You like to over-spiritualize things. Read what this says. It goes on and it says... um, Ask for the destruction of Mordecai, and I underlined it, our Savior. Our Savior. Think about that statement. Mordecai, in this letter that is sent unto the entire world, he is identified as their Savior. And this wasn't just sent to Jews. The entire nation, the entire globe, if you will. And he is called the Savior and perpetual benefactor. In other words, you can think of everlasting supporter. Everlasting. And of Esther, the blameless partner of our kingdom, together with the whole nation. You want to talk about typology. This is it. This is it. When Yeshua was manifest in the flesh, what did they call him? We find in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. That's amazing, right? The very, we're reading this document in Esther that's sent to all people, and here we read good tidings, great joy, which will be to all people, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. A Savior who is Mashiach the Lord. You read John chapter 4, he's called the Savior of the world. That whole interaction with the Samaritan woman. And the people came and ran, they heard what he said, and he said, now we believe. Not because of what you said, because our own hearers have heard, and we know he is the Savior of the world. Amazing. Continuing on in verse 14. He thought by these methods he would catch us undefended. This is speaking of Mordecai, is referring to Haman. He thought by these methods he would catch us undefended and would transfer the kingdom of the Persians to the Macedonians. We're given some insight here in regard to what Haman was attempting to do. He was attempting to transfer the kingdom. Sound familiar? 
Read Revelation 12. What is Satan recorded as trying to do? Remove the kingdom of God and put his kingdom in place in heaven. We read about a war broke out in heaven. Satan and his angels fought. Michael and his angels fought. But Satan and his angels did not prevail, and nor was there found any room for them anymore in heaven. It's exactly what we're reading here. You can't go two inches in this story without tripping over deep prophecy. It's powerful. Moving on to verse 15. But we find that the Jews who were consigned to annihilation by this thrice-accursed man are not evildoers, but are governed by most righteous laws. A beautiful. Mordecai, a typology of Yeshua, trumpeting it out and saying, listen, these people are being governed by righteous laws. Why? They were given Torah. They were given Torah at Mount Sinai. And it was that that was supposed to go out to the nations. Thy word is a lamp unto thy feet and a light unto thy path. This is why they were a light, because they were to bear the light of Torah, the light of the Messiah, Yeshua. Amazing. Most righteous laws, verse 16. And our children of the living God, most high, most mighty, who has directed the kingdom both for us and for our ancestors in the most excellent order, verse 17. You will therefore do well. <laughs> I like this. I like how Mordecai sends this warning. Yeshua sends so many warnings that we find in the New Testament. You will therefore do well not to put in execution the letter sent by Haman, son of Hamadatta, since he, the one who did these things, has been hanged at the gate of Susa with all his household. For God, who rules over all things, has speedily inflicted on him the punishment that he deserved. Now there's a warning for you. And you think about Revelation chapter 12 where you have Satan. There's no room for them in heaven anymore. They were cast out. They were an example. And we have all these stories of, of God coming and bringing destruction like on Sodom and Gomorrah. It was an example. We're supposed to be learning from this. It would do us well to pay attention to these things that God has done. And this is exactly what Mordecai is telling the world. It would do well for you to see what has happened to Haman. Don't listen to his decree. Do not follow it. Don't you dare. Moving on to verse 19. Therefore, post a copy of this letter publicly in every place and permit the Jews to live under their own laws and give them reinforcements so that on the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar, on that very day, they may defend themselves against those who attack them at the time of oppression. Verse 21. For God who rules over all things has made this day to be a joy for his chosen people instead of a day of destruction for them. Again, isn't that just like Torah? And isn't that just like Scripture where your sorrow is going to be turned to joy? We read about in Revelation, he's going to wipe away every tear from the eyes. There's going to be no more sorrow. There's going to be no more pain. Amazing. And that's what's being said right here. Moving on to verse 22. Therefore you shall observe this with all good cheer as a notable day among your commemorative festivals so that both now and hereafter it may represent deliverance for you and that the loyal Persians 
and, and the loyal Persians, but that it may be a reminder of destruction for those who plot against us. What an amazing statement. This story boils the entire story down. It is supposed to be representative of deliverance for us. For such a time as this. For this generation. That's why it's so important that this is why the Lord brought me into the study. Something I've never planned on doing. Is because this story, you need it. For what is coming, what is going to happen to this country, what is happening all over the world, you need to be locked and you need to be loaded with your eyes on Yeshua. Not giving in to fear. Because we're not given the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Going to verse 24. Every city and every country without exception, entire, everyone, that does not act accordingly shall be destroyed in wrath with spear and fire. It shall be made not only impassable for human beings, but also most hateful to wild animals and birds for all time. There is no question. The last very statement here is the prophecy. It is literally the deeper prophecy that this world and the works that are in it, they are going to burn up. You do not get in order. You do not get on God's side. Like when Moses drew a line in the sand, all who are on the Lord's side come to me. You don't get on the side of Yeshua who has drawn that line in the sand. You're going to end up this way. You're doomed to destruction. 